you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So if you'd like to join me um, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milkaijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Benai, Sher- Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josephad, Hanan, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of, the, of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you haven't met me before, my name is Koi. I'm the associate pastor here, and it's so wonderful to see uh, so many of uh, your faces here this wonderful afternoon. Um, you know, while I was studying Bible college in a place called Calgary, Canada, a student pastored a large young uh, young men's group who decided to go on a snow trip together to the snowy mountains of Montana, USA, which was just uh, south of the border. But when we got to the US border, uh, you, uh, the Border Patrol sternly called me into their large office because I was the only international student in the group. Inside the office was the most patriotic American room you could ever see. Just imagine a massive American flag just hanging off one of the walls. Then there was pictures of Obama on every single other wall. If you can imagine just the environment 
environment being very strict and very uptight. And I was so nervous. They were probably thinking these rambunctious kids, you know, trying to smuggle in this fake Australian or something like that. And it didn't help that the other church boys were kind of rowdy themselves. So they were joking around and they were like yelling, deport him. We don't even know him. Stuff like that. It's like, guys, please feel the room, right? And I got to the serving desk and I was forced and I was faced with the most terrifying man that I could that I've ever seen, I think. And he asked me, you know, what are you doing here? Which I replied, I'm just here to snowboard, man. Just here to snowboard with some mates. So he gave me a dirty look and looked ready to send me back to Canada where I was studying. And he, he took a look at my passports and required documents. With his menacing eyes, he scammed, scanned up and down the, the, the papers, looked at me, and he goes, you're a pastor? Praise God, man. Welcome to the country. Welcome to Montana. You're a people of the word. You're a people of the word. Of course, welcome. Americans, all right? Gotta love them. See, as followers of Jesus, we are often identified as a people of the word, or sometimes we may hear a people of the book. How we relate to the Bible is the clear evidence of who we are as God's people. And it's in our passage today in Nehemiah 8 where we'll see uh, what uh, author Derek Kidner describes as a turning point on this day, that from now on the Jews would be predominantly a people of the book. It's here in this chapter, in chapter 8, that we see God's chosen people go through a sort of a spiritual revival, and it's all centred around this, God's Word, His book. And it shouldn't be too much of a surprise when we hear the Word of God being uh, instrumental in spiritual revival. Uh, we've seen it in the Old Testament, uh, such as Second Chronicles 34, as Judah suffered under the reign of godless kings. God raised up Josiah who instituted spiritual reform based on what? Based on this, the law of God. And so the nation repented and revival followed. Or we think more recently to something, let's say, the the Reformation, which many of you may have heard of, where the Roman Catholic Church had long neglected the word. And so God raised up faithful servants, Martin Luther, uh, William Tyndale, John Calvin, to bring about spiritual renewal bringing believers back to a faithful understanding of what? A faithful understanding of Scripture, of God's Word. See, the Word of God is so vital to the believing Christian that it's no wonder that we are often called a people of the book. And so in our passage today, as we observe the the spiritual revival by the Word of God, what I suggest is we see God's people do four things. One, they demonstrate a hunger for the word. Two, they understand the word. Three, they're hit with the truth of the word. And four, they rejoice in the joy of the word. But before we go in, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're just so thankful that we can gather today as a church, as a family, as one body. To Lord, we're so thankful for your word. As we dig into your word, may it be your words that remain in my friends' hearts. Lord, take away any of my own and let it be only yours uh, that challenges, that convicts, that encourages us. Uh, we're so thankful that you've graciously given us your word and we pray as we go through it today that you will help us understand your word more. And we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you've been journeying with us for the past few weeks, you remember that we're uh, at the point in the story where we are in Jerusalem and after around 50-odd days of work, the walls around Jerusalem had finally been rebuilt and things were finally looking settled for God's people. And so we read at the end of chapter 7, when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. 
and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, if you know a bit of the history of God's chosen people, uh, you notice that what happened here is actually huge because if you look through all the Old Testament, most of the time the people of God gathered to hear God's word was because a leader had called them to come meet and to come together. But this is one of those rare instances where the people decided, they desired to come together to be in the word. And not only that, but how many times in the Bible have we seen these same people, God's chosen people, reject God's word rather than be desperate to hear it? We can go all the way back to Genesis 3, where the first humans rejected God's word and disobeyed him in the Garden of Eden. Or the first king of Israel, Saul, who was told by Samuel, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king as read in 1 Samuel 15. There are even many Psalms, such as Psalm 119, that lament how God's people had often neglected his word. Think about it. The very reason the Jews are here and they've rebuilt their city of Jerusalem in the first place was because centuries earlier they had rejected the word of the Lord. And so they were exiled to Babylon. But look at them now. Look at them in chapter 8. The very place their ancestors had rejected the word of God is the place that now God's people want it. They want to hear it. See, what we're seeing is a real spiritual revival in God's people as they demonstrated a hunger for God's word. And looking at our passage, I think we can see their hunger evident in a few ways. Look at verse, look at what it's first and where they gathered. Let's look at verse two. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. See, what's interesting from this is that the Jews didn't summon Ezra to come read them God's law in, let's say, the temple court, where the altar of worship would have been the main focal point as they heard the words of God. That would have made sense. But instead, they gathered in the square before the water gate. Now, that might not make sense, but basically this gate is the place where people would visit the main spring of water supplied to residents of all of Jerusalem. Basically, to paint the picture for you, it's a heavily populated and high traffic area where they were sharing the word of, listening to the word of God. The square was one of the main centers of city life. It would have been like, instead of us gathering here, it would have been like us gathering in Fed Square in Melbourne. And I think this demonstrated their hunger for the word because it meant anybody and everybody who could hear and understand would be able to gather. It says men, women, children, anyone who could understand. A public, a public display that they were indeed a people of the book. An extraordinary book for an ordinary people in their ordinary lives. See, scholar Derek Kidner writes, God's people gathered in the kind of place where God's wisdom pleads most urgently to be heard. The law itself insisted that its voice must not be confined to the sanctuary, but heard in the house and the street. See, the Jews' hunger for God's word was on display here because they knew that they needed to hear 
from this where they needed it most in their everyday lives. This reading was not left exclusively to the temple courts, but for the house and for the streets. And I think this is important because I think for us today, we're easily tempted to think that the Bible should be left exclusively to the temple courts, as in left in the church sanctuary. It's only important when it comes to Christian matters. It's only valuable in a church context. Uh, It only speaks into the topics of religion. And who can blame us when our Western society tells us this every single day? A society that tells us that the Bible is completely irrelevant. It's an ancient book that is outdated and behind the times. A postmodern society that no longer hungers for the word, but is instead sick of the word. So keep your word of God where it belongs, you Christians, in your church and away from us. As Christians living in the West today, the reality is is that this book has become unattractive. Ears are no longer attentive to it, but are closed to it. It's no longer admired, but despised. Stephen McAlpine, from his book Being the Bad Guy, says, The only way to stop being a bad guy in the eyes of the world is to become what the world says is a good guy. And right now, that means compromising in all kinds of areas where the world beckons one way and the Bible points another. The Bible points another. But see what God's people here in this passage do. They desired for this to be heard and received in the place in the places where life was most real where they needed it most in your homes in your streets at your work when all around us everywhere we look has such a low view of scripture we as god's people should be the ones that display the highest view of scripture be the hungriest for it letting it speak into not just sections of your life, but letting it speak into every aspect of your life. Jeremiah 15 verse 16 says, Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. A joy, a delight of my heart, God's word is. I think it's obvious that someone is a person of the book when you see the Bible as their most prized possession speaking into every single aspect of their life, which is what the Jews did here. But their hunger wasn't just evident in where they met, but what they did when they did meet. We read in verse 3 that they listened to God's law being read to them from the break of dawn to midday, and they were attentive to the book, listening to it carefully and intently, doing it over a long period of time. They had it read for them for about six hours. That's a long time. That's the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers. That's a very long time, folks. And it's quite inspiring, really, isn't it, to hear that. These people hungered for the Word. It really does paint a picture for a people of the Word. But while inspiring, I think it's also quite confronting because it's a vastly different picture to the all-too-common sight of those who identify as the people of the book, but in fact have nothing to do with these pages whatsoever. The many whose Bible is better served as a paperweight or a bookend, the Christians who are unmoved, unaffected by the Word of God, 
where it's clear that they don't have a hunger, but more of an indifference. And while you may sit there and think, well, that's not me. I'm not indifferent to God's word. I know its significance. You have to ask yourself, do you hunger for the word of the Lord? Do you have an appetite for this book? And while it's easy for me to stand here and say, well, I'm not one of those people who leave my Bible around to pick up dust, I know my daily temptation is to not hunger for this book. But every day, the enemy, Satan, will do whatever he can to starve that. We read here that the Jews were so hungry for God's word that they listened to it from early morning until midday. But I'd say, but Lord, they lived in 500 BC. No TV, no iPhones, no emails, no nine to five. I'm just too busy. I can barely find five minutes, let alone five hours. We read that the Jews here were attentive, opened their ears enthusiastically, responsively to hear the word of the Lord. But I'd say, okay, Koi, you're almost done. You only have two more pages to go. Then you can finally go about your day. We read that the Jews gathered as one people, as an assembly of God's chosen people to hear together what the Lord had to say to them. Yet I'd say, I don't need to come along today. I've got a fair bit to do around the house or me on the pew. I wonder what the score is right now. What's my group chat saying? What's my calendar look like for the rest of the week? See, in those moments, if somebody asks me, Koi, are you hungry for the word of the Lord? I know what my answer would be. See, I think we can all agree that we've had moments, seasons where our hunger for this book is dulled. And so what I find helpful from our passage to encourage us in those times is see why the Jews hungered for God's word, why they wanted to hear it, why they wanted everyone to hear it, why they listened to it for hours on end, why they were so attentive to every word. And I think it's because they had real reverence for the word of the Lord. Because in our passage, I see a people of the book who had a total respect for the book. In verse 4, it says that they built a wooden platform so that the word could be read up high, elevated above them as they stood and listened, an image of God's authoritative word and their submission to it. And then in verse 6, it says, it says that they were answering as they heard the words of God. They were answering, amen, amen, as Ezra read, lifting up their hands, bowing their heads to the ground and worshipping their Lord. See, these Jewish people, these Jews had a deep reverence for the word of the Lord. And you could see why. Why did they have this? Well, this book that they were reading, this law of God, for them it was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that told them of their Lord God that they had seen from Genesis, in the book of Genesis, who created the universe and is good, close, and a God of promise. They would have seen their God in Exodus, who is mighty to save and is the deliverer of his people. They would have seen their God in Leviticus, a holy, forgiving, and loving God who lives among unholy people. They would have seen their God in the book of Numbers who protects and provides for his covenant people. They would have seen the God in Deuteronomy who is gracious, gracious and just as he blesses those who are faithful and curses those who disobey. See, it's in God's word to them that his people see the breadth and depth of his character. They see in here God's holiness, his generosity, his faithfulness, God's word is his revelation to them 
and it's his revelation to us, his creation. God reveals more of himself through this book. See, theologian T.J. Betts says, people who recognize the character of God and the grace he has shown by giving by the giving of his word will readily show their respect to God by demonstrating respect for his word. And so the encouragement to us who may be struggling in hungering for the word is to go back to the basics. Remember the Lord God you worship. Remember our creator, our deliverer, our holy, faithful and just Lord and be renewed by his words that he has graciously given to us. A wonderful psalm that helps us do this, and I just love this psalm, is Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8, which says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What a great psalm. And we think of something like the church in Acts, in the book of Acts, and how they showed the same reverence, the same respect and hunger for God's word. We read it in the book of Acts, and we saw the amazing things God did through them. Imagine here, imagine if everyone here at City on a Hill had the highest regard for God's word, for God's good word, a church which sought to be lived and ruled by scripture a church where every ear was attentive to God's law, a church devoted in our devotion, a true people of the book. Every day we ought to pray for this. Every day we ought to encourage each other in this. Every day we ought to seek to live by this. See, I remember a person from a gospel community here at Melbourne West who, when I met him, would tell me that he could never read. He just doesn't like reading. He could just never get into the rhythm. He just doesn't read books. And so he found it hard to read the Bible. And as years went on, I saw a change in him. And so I caught up with him to hear what's been going on in his life. And he told me that even though he had told me that he'd struggled, he persevered. He, he told me he pushed through. And then what he found is over time, he found himself wanting more. No joke, now he sets an alarm at 3.30 a.m. every morning to wake up to read the Bible for about 30 to 40 minutes before he goes back to bed. That's very weird, right? There's a lot of different times throughout the day you can read the Bible, people. I just want to let you know that. But he told me how it really works for him because what it does is he wakes up, he reads it, he goes back to bed. When he wakes up again, he remembers everything that he's read and then he meditates on it all day thinking about what he's read. But it was so encouraging to hear that from him, considering the first time when I met him, he said he had no desire to read whatsoever. But that's the encouraging thing, and it made me believe that the more we are in this book, the more our appetite for it will grow. We'll see five minutes become 10, 10 become 30, 30 become an hour. We won't see it as a chore, but we read it in eagerness, responding with amen, amen, lifting our hands up and bowing our heads in worship of our God. We'll look forward to gathering together to hear the word preached to us, opening our eyes, our ears, our hearts to hear more of God as he is seen as we open these pages. To be a people of the book, we need to hunger for the book. But just as important as we continue reading, 
what we see from our passage is that the Jews not only demonstrated a hunger for the book, but they also wanted to understand God's word. See, there was a real enthusiastic passion from the Jews as they sought to hear from God's word together. But even with their zeal, without proper understanding, it would have been ineffectual, right? It's like when you start a new board game. There's always two types of people, right? Say you start a new board game with two, with a bunch of people and you, you get those people that are like, who cares? Let's just play. Who cares about the rules? We'll just jump in and see what happens. Th- those people are actually the worst, right? We know that. Lena tells me all the time, Koi, you are the worst, right? We can't do that when it comes to God's word. It can't be like this with God's law. And Ezra and his assistants knew this. And so we read that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And there's a few things here that I see in these verses that I think is helpful for us in our understanding the word. First of all, notice that God provides faithful teachers. In verse 2, we see Ezra being the one who brought the word. You might remember Ezra from his book, Ezra in chapter 7, where it described him as a priest and a scribe who had his heart set to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. See, what makes Ezra notable here is that he doesn't only study God's word, but he applies it. He lives it out in his daily life. And so he speaks from that wooden platform, not detached from what he's teaching, but he practices what he preaches. Author T.J. Bett says, it is his commitment to learn God's law and to obey it that make him especially qualified to lead the events that take place in Nehemiah 8 and instruct the people. See, all throughout this series, we've seen how God has worked to provide and protect his people in their physical rebuild. But in God providing them with a man such as Ezra, to read, explain, interpret, and apply the word of God to his people. This is God working for their spiritual rebuild. Because I think good teachers, teachers who are clearly people of the word, they build up others to also then be a people of the word. Teachers who themselves hunger for God's word, walk in God's word, are built up in God's word, obey God's word, and and then go teach God's word. See, when this happens, there's a follow-on effect. See, Adoniram Judson was an 18th century Baptist missionary who became the first North American Protestant uh, missionary in Burma, Myanmar. It took him 12 years to see his first 18 converts, 12 years. Yet throughout all of that, he remained faithful as a gifted teacher and a doer of the word all throughout. By the time he died, he had established 100 churches with over 8,000 members. Actually, before at the 9 a.m., there was actually a family who had just come here. They kind of knew and they they were Burmese. And they told me that for the first six years, there were zero converts in his mission. But can you see this example is you can see his faithfulness even throughout to be somebody who loved the word, who wanted to teach the word and lived out the word. See, like this example, the mission field is one of the evident ways 
that God provides faithful teachers today. There, this is a great reason for us to support our missionaries because through faithful word-soaked teachers who God has raised up and equipped, he uses them to bring about spiritual revival across all the nations. But it's not only in out in the mission field, but more similarly in our churches too. You know, God has provided you, provided us with pastors here, like Luke, myself, uh, lay pastors, CK teachers, people who are teaching, have teaching roles and gifts here at our church, faithful teachers who seek to be a people of the book. So what we can do is be thankful to our Lord and, and do our best to support them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So we love our teachers by supporting them. How? Supporting them through prayer. Daily praying for our teachers, our leaders, for them that they may hunger for the word, that they may study the word, and that they may importantly live out the word in order that they teach it faithfully, in order that they teach it truthfully, in order that they teach it well, building up the church. One of my greatest encouragements I hear is when I hear that the, we have a morning group that prays together on Zoom and to hear that they've been praying for us as the pastors and the teachers here constantly because we need it. It's not in our own strength. We can't do it. But we also support our leaders, our teachers through encouragement. Tell your teachers what God has been teaching you through God's word. Tell them what you found encouraging, convicting, challenging from their sermons, their classes, their discussions. Tell them that you've been praying for them and you've seen the fruits of their labor. God has gracious, graciously given us teachers of his word. So let's love them through prayer and encouragement as a people of the word. We are a people of the word together. And as God provided the Jews with faithful teachers, what was happening was his word was being clearly expounded or explained. See, verse 7 has a list, that list that her Liz read so well. You read very well, Liz. Has a list of Ezra's Levite assistants who were described as helping the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Because most of the crowd spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew, the Levite assistants from verse 7 were going around the crowd translating and explaining what was being read in order that God's people would understand, getting clarification on things, hearing its implications, having God's words clearly translated, articulated and explained to them. See, Wallace Ben says they clearly expounded and applied the word of God to a people eager to hear. And I just love how they did this. Think about it. At a macro level, here was a large group gathered together as a people of the book in one of the most populated spots in the city, depicting a real oneness. While at the same time, at a micro level, here were gifted leaders going around to small groups, helping expound, explain the Bible clearly for them to understand, depicting a real closeness. It's a little gospel community-like, isn't it? See, in gospel communities, we are often getting clarification on things that we've heard in Scripture. In gospel communities, we are hearing the implications and application of God's Word for our lives. In gospel communities, we are having things expounded, explained to us, explained to better understand the text together. In gospel, communi in gospel communities, uh, we are translating the Word from Hebrew to Aramaic. Are we? Is anyone doing that? I know the Traganina group with Paul might be doing that, right? No, yeah. 
St. Albans does, be better, guys. Right. And, and, uh, we know, we know, just joking. But really, it's such a great picture of the people of the word, isn't it? Not only is this a massive plug for gospel communities, but I think it's important to see the significance of not only hearing the word, but understanding it. I think it presents a strong case for actual Bible study. Much of scripture is plain to anyone who can read, but we also know that there is plenty in the Bible that is difficult to grasp, requires further explanation, or parts that we have trouble interpreting, which is rather humbling, really, to think about it. But what God has revealed through his word is indeed for us. And so we should seek to best understand what our Lord has to say in these pages. And I just love how God shows us this. By how? By doing it as a people, a people of the book. As I said earlier, God provides us with preachers and teachers who do that as the word is expounded and communicated at a macro level to the larger people of God, just like what we're doing right now. But in our passage, we see it also happen at a micro level. Gifted leaders who help explain, initiate discussion, or even challenge each other on some of the things that may be difficult to grasp. People who commit to one another in building up, in the building up of sound, accurate, and clear teaching. This is what was going on in scripture, and this is what is encouraged for us. A people of the book who explain and expound it faithfully that brothers and sisters may be changed and that God may be glorified. God desires that we understand his word. So let's do it as a people. As a church, let's devote ourselves to understanding God's word together. Plug into gospel communities. Get your kids involved in city kids and city youth. Go to church events that better equip you through the wisdom of the Bible. Meet up with your mentors and mentees and dig into the word together and pray together. God has graciously given us these pages and the means to better understand it. So together, let's be committed to knowing, uh, to, to knowing more of his word. Famous pastor John Calvin said in a sermon, the word of God is not to teach us to prattle, not to make us eloquent and subtle and know not what. It is to reform our life so that it is known that we desire to serve God, to give ourselves entirely to him and to conform ourselves to his good will. The word is here to reform our lives. And the more we understand what's on these pages, the more we see the truth, the truths of this word. And it's that that changes us, which is exactly what happened to these Jews in Jerusalem. So let's keep reading in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. See, as God's people sat there hearing the word being preached to them, the Jews were hit with the convicting truth of the word, that they had fallen short of the God whom they worshipped. Hearing the word of God, grasping what it said, they were made aware that they stood there as a sinful people in front of a holy God. And so they had a deep sorrow for their sin, weeping for their failure as they heard God's true word. 
It's a real picture of what's said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We see this clearly right now, that it pierced them. They saw the truth of the word. They were a sinful people. And yet, for the Jews, this seems like a proper response, doesn't it? We only heard a few weeks ago in Ezra chapter 10 how God's people saw the weight of their sin and so they repented to God. But strangely, here in verse 9, it tells us that Nehemiah, Ezra and all the leaders all told them not to grieve. Why is that? Well, I think that while God actually calls us to mourn our sin and to take it seriously, God doesn't expect us to be in a state of perpetual grief over our transgressions. This was meant to be a day of celebration, a joyous gathering, a holy day they referred to was the day that the exiles here gathered as a returned people. The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. God's people were back in their great city of Jerusalem. This was the day that God reaffirmed to them that they were still God's chosen people and that he was still their God. And that's something worth celebrating about. This was an occasion for joy, and so their grief was not fitting for this day. And I think this is helpful for us to hear, because for us today, I think there is a helpful grief when it comes to our sin, but also there can be an unhelpful grief. See, I remember when I was doing my exam to go from my learners to my P's, like 20 odd years ago, I remember making a, a grave mistake where I, I hesitated at the yellow to red light and I, I stopped too late and I stopped in the middle of the whole intersection. Right, I know, shocking. And then I looked over at the examiner to my side and I saw him shaking his head, writing it down. I was like, well, I failed. I know I failed. And so I didn't know what to do. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to exaggerate how much I am sorry. So I started like really exaggerating my grief, like just being like any chance I could would put my hands over my head and then just gently hit the steering wheel like, oh, come on, Coy. And I, like, I'd whisper things under my breath, like, like, Coy, what are you doing? You should know better. Like quietly, but also loud enough that I know that he can hear it, you know. So I was just doing all this, just really exaggerating my point, just trying to kind of, I guess in a way, I was hoping to prove to my examiner by showing the level of grief that I'd made this mistake, hoping that he'd pass me. He did pass me, but delete that part from your brain because that doesn't fit my point, okay? So, so that's just God's grace, right? But while I may have done this, in my learner's test. I think in reality, when it comes to our faith, I think we can be very easily tempted to do the same. Where you feel like you need to prove to God by the level of grief you have. Prove to him how sorry you are by being more grieving of your sin. You wallow in your self-deprecation, hoping that God sees you hate yourself. You believe in some sort of penance where you inflict forms of punishment as an expression of your sorriness. And then what it often leads to more is more unhelpfulness, more unhelpful grief, because it then starts to make you think that maybe you're too far gone. So you grieve thinking that God won't forgive you if you do come to him. You start to forget his nature and his character that we see in his very word. See, there is a helpful grief and a time for it, which we'll see in the following chapters. But in this instance, 
they need not mourn for what a gracious and faithful God they worship who would still love them as his people. This was a time to celebrate, a time for joy. And Nehemiah makes sure to tell all of God's people this, where in verse 10 it says, he says, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Or better translated when you translate it, the joy of the Lord is your stronghold, your fortress, your refuge. For all their sorrow, for all their guilt, for all their grief over their sin, there is a refuge. And it is the joy of their Lord the joy of the God whom they had seen all along in here as they were reading and understanding it, the joy of the God who forgives them, the God who saves them, the God who remains faithful to them, the God who gives his grace to them. Because of God's readiness to forgive those who repent, Nehemiah encouraged the crowd to no longer weep, but instead be joyful and celebrate for what a God they worship. And what's awesome is first the crowd did not understand. That's why they were crying. But it says in verse 12 that eventually they started rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. See, author John Piper sums this up well. He says, you can't honour God as holy if you only grieve in his presence. Grief is good. Fear is good. Penitence is good. Tears are good. But not if that's all you feel. God's holiness is the purity and perfection, not only of his justice, but also of his mercy and grace. How wonderful is it that we see this people of the book be faced with the truth of the book, the truth of their sin, and at the same time, they are then met with the joy of the word that while there is indeed weeping, there is also joyous celebration, that God convicts us of our sin with a view of saving us from our sin, that as our wonderful lay pastor Lee once shared to me, that being sorry for sin and trusting God's mercy for forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. Such a good line. And it wouldn't be too long later where God's people would come to see the clearest picture, the clearest picture of both the truth and the joy of the word. As the wonderful word of God would not only be seen and heard from these pages, but the word would come in flesh. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, while scripture reveals to us the breadth 
and depth of God's character, where we see his holiness, his generosity, and his faithfulness. God himself came down to us, where we saw the breadth and depth of his character in a person, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God's holiness was made clear as he walked this earth, not only studying, not only teaching, but living God's law word, living God's law perfectly, but he also fulfilled the law. In Jesus, God's generosity was made clear as he was crucified on a cross, giving up his body, his glory, his life to die the death meant for sinners. In Jesus, God's faithfulness was made clear as he was raised to life and ascended to heaven where the long-time promise of a Messiah and a Saviour for humanity was indeed fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is because of Jesus that we need not remain in our grief from our sin, but know that we have a Saviour who has washed away our sin, redeemed us, by his blood, and is ready to forgive those who repent. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And that's something worth being joyful about. But even more, while the word became flesh, God promised something even more. Where in Jeremiah chapter 31, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, everything I've just said today about hungering for the word, about understanding the word, it is so hard to do. That's the reality. See, in our own strength, it is hard to hunger or understand God's word given to us. Why? Because we're a fallen people. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, God had promised a new covenant of grace where the law of the Lord will now be written on his people's hearts. To those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, the word is now written on your hearts. You are in union with the word. You are united with Christ. You have the mind of Christ and his spirit dwells in you richly. And so it is by his help, it is by his spirit that he gives you the hunger to hear more from this. It is by his spirit, it is by his help that he helps you to understand the words from these pages. It is by his spirit that he convicts you of the truth of the word, of our sin and how far we've fallen. Yet it is also by his spirit that he emboldens us with the joy of our merciful and gracious saviour, that we have Jesus who has paid the price for us. It is a true love of Jesus that leads us to a growing love of God's word. So City on a Hill, let's be a people of the book. For as Pastor R.C. Sproul wonderfully put it, it is by God's word, the Bible, that leads us to God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who leads us into restored fellowship with our maker. So like God's people in Nehemiah, Let's celebrate and sing joyful praise to our wonderful, wonderful God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a gracious Father you are, that you would give us your wonderful word. Your Psalms say, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
Help us hunger for your word, Lord. May your spirit open our hearts to understand your word that we may better see it, better obey. Thank you that your word is both truth and joy, that in Jesus we see the truth of our sin, which he bore on that cross. But we also see the everlasting joy that he is our redeemer, that he has saved us, that he is the word become flesh. What good and joyous news that is. What a good Saviour we have in him. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy on us, our good and gracious God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.